talking about this. They all know that these questions should be asked and answered, but they're, they're still suffering from the effects of 60-year truth embargo. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is March 2nd, 2008. This is an ultra-fresh episode of BOA Audio. We taped it this past Wednesday evening. Our guest is founder of the Paradigm Research Group, creator of the X Conference, and a major player in the world of exopolitics. Making his BOA audio return, he is Stephen Bassett. Stephen and I will be discussing the changes in public perception for the UFO phenomenon in the last two years since his last appearance, the distinction between ufology and exopolitics, the UFO connections for each of the remaining three candidates for U.S. President, McCain, Obama, and Clinton, why Steve thinks disclosure is possible for spring of 2009, his take on the Kucinich firestorm from last November, the changing stance of the media with regards to UFOs, Steve's response to the haters who are anti-exopolitics, and, of course, tons and tons more. It's jam-packed with information, and it's timely information when one considers where we're at here in the 2008 political cycle. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Steve Bassett, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Steve Bassett is a political activist, founder of the Paradigm Research Group, Executive Director of the Extraterrestrial Phenomena Political Action Committee, XPPAC, author of the Paradigm Clock website, and a political columnist, commentator, and former independent candidate for Congress. He is the executive producer of the X Conference. Presently, he is the only registered lobbyist in the United States representing ET-related phenomena research activist organizations, and XPAC is the first political action committee to target the political implications of ET-related phenomena. Between April 19th and November 5th of 2002, he conducted an independent candidacy in the 2002 congressional campaign in the 8th District of Maryland. It was the first instance in which a candidate on the November ballot in a federal election openly addressed the matter of an ET presence and the government-imposed truth embargo. Since 1996, he has assisted a number of organizations and initiatives which have been making the case for, one, an end to the government embargo on the truth surrounding an ET presence, and two, open congressional hearings to take the testimony of former military and agency employee witnesses to ET-related events and evidence. He has spoken to millions of Americans about the likelihood and implications of a formal disclosure event. His website is www.paradigmresearchgroup.org, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M, researchgroup.org. And the website for the X Conference is www.x-conference.com, Check out both those sites. They are fantastic. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 27, 2008. Steve Bassett talking about exopolitics on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of BOA Audio Season 3. We're bringing back one of our guests here from Season 1, someone who was instrumental in my entry into the field of ufology and the esoteric 
via his outstanding conference, the X Conference in Washington, D.C. I'm stunned to think that it's been four years since the first X Conference, where, which I attended and sort of got the ball rolling on what I've been doing now. I'm kind of scared that it's been four years already. In a world uh, that is esoterica, that is full of talkers, uh, Steve Bassett, our guest here, is a doer. And I think that's the best compliment I can say about him. There's a lot of talkers in the world of ufology and the esoteric, but Steve Bassett's a doer. He actually produces things, so I have great respect for him for that. Welcome back to the show, Steve Bassett. He's calling from Laughlin, Nevada at the International UFO Congress. So uh, I'm really excited to get him here on the show, and thanks for taking some time during the festivities to talk to us and uh, come back to the show. Well, it's always great to be with you, Tim. Um, I'm honored that you are one of the ex-conference alumni. Uh, there are a growing number of these, and it's always gratifying to think that the event was instrumental in bringing you into the field. There are a number of other people that have told me the same thing, but other conferences have been playing that role for the last 60 years. That's what is a citizen science movement underway. Absolutely, absolutely. And we last talked to you a couple of years ago, and I guess just to sort of dive in and start things out, since your last visit, which was like January of 06, uh, ufology's kind of made a comeback here. It's it's broken back into the mainstream, sort of reestablished itself. Um, I guess just talk about that, the resurgence of ufology in the last couple of years, and, of course, how that relates to the exopolitical movement. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm sort of a stickler with nomenclature. I think I think uh, it's very the words and terms are very important when you're trying to evolve new ideas and change policy. So let me be clear. Ufology is a term that has come to describe the citizen science engagement of phenomena, which clearly indicate, in my view, almost beyond a reasonable doubt, there's an extraterrestrial presence engaging us, has been for a lot, very long time, and certainly in a very active way since 1947. And it's a citizen science movement because mainstream science and the government and the entire university and college world have acceded to a government truth embargo and will engage the issue, so the public has. That has started to change in 1991, and when we entered, as I like to refer to, the era of exopolitics, and what that means is is that the next step was to actually change the government policy. And while the science of studying this phenomena, which we'll call ufology, certainly continues, mm -hmm. the resolution of the government policy is what's most essential to having this become a matter for all nations, all peoples, and all institutions to engage, which, of course, is what it deserves. It's, it's only, in my opinion, the most profound event in human history. And so my work is the exopolitical process of disclosure, uh, at least for now. There are other aspects to exopolitics. Disclosure is the formal acknowledgement of ET presence by the governments of the world, starting with a government, probably us, doesn't have to be. And we're making a lot of progress there. Now, not surprisingly, as, as the public awareness grows, uh, when there are events like a Stephenville or an O'Hare or the San Diego sighting or the Guernsey Island sighting and so forth, it's getting more coverage. People want to hear more about it. And that's very significant. And we're seeing that. So the comeback that you're experiencing is, an, is a resurgence of the media coverage of events that have been happening regularly for the last 60 years. And that reflects a change in public awareness. And that is a, a very significant political fact. And I think it's starting to transfer to political reality. So we're, we're, we're headed towards a breakthrough, not in science. 
Not a scientific breakthrough on the issue. I think we know we know enough to certainly confirm the ET presence and that they have advanced technology. But we're headed toward a breakthrough in which I think will trip the disclosure event, the one we've been shooting for. And I and my goal, my expectation is it'll be the spring of next year. Oh wow, wow. Well, we're going to have to talk about that. Um, yeah, I didn't want to besmirch you by calling you a ufologist. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me no, be clear no. here. Let me, you, know, you, know, you get me in a lot of trouble with that, Tim. Uh, I, I, I talk in my, my my presentations about the UFO era, which I believe will be categorized as running from '47 to '91, and then with the end, the end of the Cold War and the freeing up of people to come forward who felt that they could talk. Uh, what we call the witnesses, yeah. people who are from within government, really started driving the political process in in 91 or the, 92, we, we, we began the era of exopolitics. I'm just trying to get the terms defined. Oh, no, no. I told I was just, I was just busting your shit. I was just, I, I was know, just, I but yeah, there is an important distinction there between ufology and exopolitics and often exopolitics sort of falls under the umbrella of ufology when they're kind of running concurrently. It's like political science and physics, right? Mm-hmm. Neither is a subset of the other. Right or physics and uh, physics and biology, they are they are they're, they're side by side, but they're heavily in, in, in connected. Without 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 the UFO research uh, by the citizen science movement, it would be almost impossible to have uh, be able to have any kind of an exopolitical movement now. Uh, well, there had to be a base of understanding that that the that the government would not allow to be developed within our mainstream scientific community or the college and university. So we went and developed it ourselves. Uh, so believe me, you can't have one without the other. But clearly, when it comes to government policy changes about what the people know or not know, that's not a scientific decision. That is a political decision based upon uh, a whole range of principles that we would put under political science. But in this case, since we're dealing with an extraterrestrial fact, then I, I call it exopolitical science, which is why we use the term, and, and I hope that exopolitics and its, its uh, subsidiary terms will be in the mainstream dictionaries within hopefully no more than 12 months. Nice, nice. Well, um, you're setting a lot of timetables here, and I'm excited about that. Let's sort of talk about uh, what's going on, obviously, here in 2008. This is right in your wheelhouse, of course, the, uh, mm-hmm. the presidential election. Luckily, right. we're doing the interview now where there's only three, three remaining potential candidates left, so we don't have to waste a lot of time on the John Kerry's and Mitt Romney's of the, of the race. So what, right. what's your take on the three remaining candidates? Where do you see this shaping up from an exopolitical perspective? Well, to sum up 2008, an understanding that it, it seems like it was just yesterday that Nixon and uh, Kennedy had their famous black and white television debate. Right? Everybody thought that was the end of the world, uh, and it was a first. And of course, now media and politics are intertwined, mm-hmm. inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Uh, well, let me put this way: you can have media without politics, but you sure can't have politics without media. And media thrives on politics, so they're, they're just they're just wedded. Yeah. Um, so if you want to if you want to deal in the political process, you have to be able to deal with the political media process. Uh, now, given that there has been a huge increase in media coverage of the issue, which is non-trivial, uh, I, I, I keep a media archive on my main site, paradigmresearchgroup.org, uh, that that now has eight, over eighteen hundred articles. Links to 1,800 articles. Most of them are on the internet, and they're in there where they were originally located. But many of them are text files that I've created on the server. In any case, that's 1,800 mainstream articles now, not not alternative press, not tabloids. And in 2006, drawing from roughly the same sources, I think I logged in 187 articles. In 2007, it jumped to 376. Oh wow! This year we're on a we're on a uh, 
a time frame or a pace to, to log in 1,200 articles. Wow. Now, this, this has significant impact on the political process, and all of this coverage is heightening public awareness, and a lot of this coverage is also dealing with political aspects of the issue. So not surprisingly, in the, uh, during the October 30th debate, of, of the many, many debates that we've had in the primary season, uh, Tim Russert popped a serious question at uh, Dennis Kucinich. Uh, triggered by uh, the mention of Kucinich's 1982 sighting and, and Dennis, uh, rather in Shirley MacLaine's uh, new book, Aging While Aging. She's a close friend of Kucinich. They've known each other for 20-some years. She's a godmother to her daughter. There's simply no way that he could try to blow that answer off. Uh, we've been putting the information out to the press and, and, and raising the political uh, campaign uh, issue on regarding UFOT phenomena for some time. So uh, Chris Matthews followed up with a uh, question to uh, Bill Richardson after the debate. A question eventually went to Romney. question has gone to Obama. Hillary Clinton is next. So the the issue is really on the edge of becoming a real a factor, an actual factor in this campaign that the candidates are going to have to address. This is very significant, very, very significant, because the the media is so huge now, and, and huge in the sense of the the, uh, the, 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 the scope, internet, television, uh, cable news, the whole nine yards. So once it gets on something, it's it's absolutely uh, they call it a media frenzy, right? Yeah. All right, now that's been in play and been going on for the last six, seven months. Mm-hmm. Now we're down to almost three candidates, and all three of them have connections to the UFO issue, and, and given all the groundwork that's been laid, I don't think they're going to be able to get through to November without having to answer serious questions, which could trigger any number of media firestorms. Let's start with McCain. He is he is probably in the safest position, but McCain uh, was approached by Francis Barwood of the Phoenix City Council during the Phoenix Lights mm-hmm. events and was asked to look into it. He made some queries, gave her a reasonable response, though nothing was really resolved. He's, he's shown displeasure in the past with the way NASA conducts its business, uh, which is to say that NASA is completely conflicted uh, in its conduct as, as a civilian space agency because it's hampered by the National uh, Space Act of 1958 uh, and can't reveal anything related to ET phenomena, no matter what it finds, sees, interacts with, under the national security uh, uh, component of the, of, the, of the Space Act. And so it's, it's incredibly conflicted, and as a result, its behavior can get pretty odd. He, is, he has commented on that. He's a maverick. He's, he's tough. He's difficult. He's somebody that could buck the inside groups if, in fact, they wanted to keep the embargo going, though I think they've probably decided not to do that. So McCain is somebody you could see pushing a disclosure event or supporting a disclosure event, and that's good. But he's not going to win the presidency. Uh, he, he just isn't. The Republican, it's not their time. The Democrats are going to win. They're going to win big. The two candidates there, Clinton and Obama. Let's start with Obama. He has a very interesting connection to the UFO issue that most people don't know about. Yeah, I've never heard about this, so I'm really interested in what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. In his own general history and personal life, nothing. Right? Has said anything? I don't think he knows very much. But there is somebody that does, and that is Zbigniew Brzezinski, who is basically the Henry Kissinger of the Democratic side of the aisle. A major player, belongs to all of the high end internationalist groups, 
Um, and, of course, he was the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter. At the time that Jimmy Carter came into the White House with a mandate of sorts, not a mandate, but a, a request by thousands and thousands of, of, of people who had written and emailed him, not emailed him, but wrote him, saying that uh, they wanted him to look at the UFO issue, as he had promised to do during his campaign. He's the only president that ever brought that issue up during the campaign. Uh, he'd had a sighting. It was known. He got asked about it. Anyone, thousands and thousands of letters poured in. They had to sign people to deal with that, and he initiated two studies, two attempts to study the ET issue in the early months of his administration. One was shut down by the Department of Defense, and that was the outside study that was brought to their door by the Stanford Research Institute in the form of Alfred Weber. Yep. They shut that down very quickly. Uh, the other study was initiated from within the White House. That one couldn't just be terminated. Uh, basically, there was a refusal to cooperate by any of the agencies, which is interesting. This is, after all, the president, the White House, that's asking this to go forward. And so they essentially, to save face, just sort of ran it down slowly, and a report was finally written by Marcia Smith, a very nice lady who's now since retired. Uh, the report was eventually called the UFO Enigma. It wasn't a bad report, and it was just shoved off to the side, and that was that. Watching all of this take place was a big new Brzezinski. And I think we can be fairly confident that Zbigniew has the kinds of contacts that if, if he wants to know whether there's validity of the ET presence, he can find out about three phone calls. And I'm sure he's done that. So he's aware of the ET presence, and he certainly watched Carter make those efforts. Never been asked about it, and Carter's never been really pressed to, to, to ask about those studies either. Well, Obama has chosen Zbigniew Brzezinski to be his chief national security advisor during the campaign. So that connects him straight back to Jimmy Carter, the Jimmy Carter studies of 1977, and of course everything and anything that Zbigniew knows about this issue. Yeah. And it's only a matter of time, if I have anything to say about it, he's going to be asked about that as is Zbigniew Brzezinski. And that brings us to Clinton. She's got a real problem. And the problem is simple. And there is a whole section devoted to this on my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org. Go to the main PRG site. Mm -hmm and check out the section on the Rockefeller Initiative. All of this is based on the work of Canadian researcher Grant Cameron, and there's a link back to his site, presidentialufo.com, where there's substantial write-ups uh, giving more of the history of the Rockefeller Initiative. My page, which is very extensive, is, is more of a, of a key stone reference page for politicians and media. But between my, my section at the PRG site and Grant Cameron's section at Presidential UFO, you can get the picture real fast. And that is simply this, that for two years, Lawrence Rockefeller tried to convince Bill Clinton to release all the UFO documents and essentially end the truth in Porco. It didn't happen, and we could talk about why, but, but everyone kind of remember, most people remember the Clinton administration. It was, it was wild and crazy, and it was, a, it was very, very difficult political times. And... He, he did He did respond. He did some things. He asked Webster Hubble to look into the issue. He asked John Podesta to try to reform the FOI laws or at least get more documents out. But he never took a stand on the ET issue. He wasn't able to do that, didn't have the political capital. But this went on for two years. There were reports. There were studies. There were meetings. Uh, and Bill and Hillary went up and discussed this issue with Lawrence Rockefeller at his ranch in 1995. There, Rockefeller brought researchers to his ranch to, to plan strategy and on and on and on. And let me tell you something. There is no way that a subject right, that had no substance could be pursued in that manner within the White House for two years and not be valid. 
Yeah. Right. It's just absolutely ridiculous. If somebody had come, for instance, and I don't mean to disparage those who believe in Bigfoot, but if someone had approached the White House and said, look, I want to help prepare a report to give to the president to tell the world about Sasquatch, that would have lasted about five minutes. Uh, there just isn't enough there. But on the UFO issue, of course, there is enough there because there's ET presence has been proven many times over. So that went on for two years. Hillary Clinton watched it all happen from the White House. We have over 1,000 pages of documents released on FOIA confirming the Rockefeller Initiative. There are documents being released by the Clinton Library, which are going to help confirm the awareness of the RI from the White House side. And there's simply nothing she can do about that. And so she saw this go on. She was aware of it. One of the documents refers to the fact that she he was briefed on the developments that were going on and the studies were being done. So, and she'd never been asked about this. Now, Lawrence Rockefeller was a friend of hers. We have photos of them together. We have photos of Bill and Rockefeller together. So they're going to have to very soon, both he and her, but particularly her since she wishes to be president of the United States, are going to be asked by a Tim Rathers or Chris Matthews or Chris Wallace or any other number, big shot media pundits or talk show hosts are going to be asked, what did you know about it? What did you think about it? Why did it happen? Where are more documents? And so forth. Yeah. These, these are questions that should have been asked of candidates for the last 50 years. They just aren't. The, the press went along with the truth embargo. So Hillary Clinton is in the most difficult spot, caught between her desire to be president of the United States and her unwillingness to, on her own, address what is easily the most important issue in the world. And that's going to eventually be resolved here pretty soon. So I invite your, your listeners to, to pay close attention to debates and uh, watch for those questions to finally turn up. Yeah. And now I want to sort of ask you about the media firestorm, if you will, around the, the Kucinich thing about six months ago, like you said. I was kind of disappointed with the whole thing, a little disenfranchised about it, just because it seemed like throughout the year uh, the media was really kind of pro-UFO and less of the giggle factor than we'd seen in quite some time. But then once it got raised into the presidential election and during the debates, it seemed like the giggle factor really got turned up pretty high, and I was sort of disappointed with the whole with how it turned out. But I guess uh, I don't know. Talk me off the ledge here about about the Kucinich reaction, if you will. Well, I I, I'm, I have you at a disadvantage, Tim, because I I follow this constantly. Oh yeah, I, that's why I'm, I'm logging in the articles. I'm I'm checking the videos. In fact, we've got at the paradigmresearchgroup.org site we've got uh, you know video links to the Kucinich question, the Richardson question, uh, Hillary. Uh, uh, Shirley MacLaine interviews where she she talks about the Kucinich issue and so forth. It's all there. You can go. You can go see all this. And so, uh, when you when you catch some of this here and there, it's easy to get you know perhaps an, an inaccurate impression. Uh, the fact is is that the degree of seriousness that the media is treating this is higher than it's ever been. Okay. What you picked up on is that since those questions were virtually the first questions ever asked of uh, candidates, principal party candidates, in the middle of a campaign, that they really had to dance. And so they're laughing and they're smiling, and the the questioners both – both well, not so much Russert, who's a pretty serious guy, and no, nobody to fool with. But Chris Matthews, they were, they were, they were uncomfortable. You could tell. They, they, they all know that they should be 
talking about this. They all know that these questions should be asked and answered, but they're they're still suffering from the effects of sixty year truth embargo. So you're picking up on that, but what you're missing is the fact those questions were asked at all, and that the answers were were not dismissive. They they were they were balanced in a sense that they had to they had to do they had to dance a little bit and they had to try to say something substantive. Uh, but overall, this is unprecedented. And then the follow up articles, which I've cataloged, I mean, almost all of those were generally straight, uh, including a front page article in the Wall Street Journal on January the second, which essentially recounted uh, the the 1982 Kucinich sighting uh, after they interviewed two individuals who were staying at the house at the same time and were with them when it happened. It was an absolutely straight story. So let me be clear: the media coverage right now, the UFO issue. And, and all related aspects of it is greater than it's ever been in history, too. It's, it's about as serious as it's ever been, though I think it might have been more serious in the early days, right, when yeah. it was a lot of uncertainty what was going on, and the government hadn't really gotten the embargo going. It didn't really get underway until 52. So it was pretty serious coverage then, but that was a long time ago. Once the truth embargo was in place and they started the whole game of, of ghettoizing this issue, intellectually ghettoizing the issue, uh, we haven't had coverage like this. So this is, this is a breakthrough time. Uh, and we should be very happy about that, and I think that you're going to see it get better. Yeah. Uh, the Internet is, of course, playing a major factor here because when anything happens, it, 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 it's usually videoed. We can then archive those videos and link to it, and people can go and see exactly what happened and then draw upon that as they decide what to do next. And so the Internet now makes it possible to build a platform of public awareness based upon archived events that we can draw on. This is this is unprecedented as well and why the truth embargo, again, really has got a chance now. You raise a, uh, a bold prediction, I guess you could say, spring 2009. Uh, what makes you think that we're going to see disclosure in spring 2009, and what, what's the road to that, do you think? Well, let me be clear. I'm not in the prophecy business. I'm not yeah. Gene Dixon, all right? I'm not in the prophecy business. I, I, I am a political advocate. All right. I'm an activist. My job is to advance an issue to to change government policy. Uh, and in that regard, just like any activist and any advocate or lobbyist, which I'm also a lobbyist, you, you, you have to pay as close attention as you can. Everything is going on to see what's likely to happen next. All right. Mm -hmm. And my assessment, based upon a whole lot of things, which we really don't have enough time to go into, but particularly drawing on the actions of Bill Richardson and John Podesta, right? those two in particular, uh, as well as um, other input I'm getting from some inside sources, also, of course, the press. I My assessment is that, one, the truth embargo is, is falling apart. Two, oh, and this is very important, by the way, the international picture has changed dramatically. Yeah. Uh, we have we have substantial developments going on in the United Kingdom, in France, in China, Mexico, Brazil, Canada, uh, and the the willingness of, of first world countries to uh, our allies to simply go along with whatever we want is 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 nothing like it was in 1947. I can assure you, and in the last six or seven years, it has deteriorated quite extraordinarily. And so we simply don't have the ability anymore to to, to to demand or control the actions of our allies with respect to issues. As a result, at any day, any time, another nation, France, Germany, UK, could hold a press conference 
release evidence, probably gun camera footage from Chase planes and any any other material they want to put forward, and end the truth embargo. And that would be a major blow for the United States. Some people don't agree with that. I don't care. I know it'll be a major blow. So the Democrats and the Republicans have that to contend with, but the Democrats are going to win the next election. So with that, with that outside pressure and the potential for another nation to take that legacy and end the truth embargo and announce the ET presence to the world and the U.S. having to follow suit, right, not lead but follow, the Democrats, I think, have been laying the groundwork to, to end the embargo in the early months of the next administration. They have no incentive to obviously push to do it now for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, now, why early in the next administration? It's really simple calculus. If they don't do it fairly soon in the new administration, then the embargo becomes theirs, just like it became the last administration, and the one before that, and the one before that. And so if a couple of years go by, then they have to explain to the American people, well, why didn't you tell us a month ago, six months ago, a year ago, a year and a half ago? On the other hand, if they reveal it in the early days of the administration, then they can say, look, the previous administrations t chose not to allow this information out, chose not to provide you this important information. We, we believe that policy is wrong, and we're giving it to you now. Everybody wins. They win. People win. All right? And so that's my call. The, the, the logic to me is very clear. The circumstances are very straightforward. Either announce it early next year after winning the election and take on the mantle and the legacy of the of the truth embargo presidency and all that entails, or risk having that embargo become yours and having to follow France when they do it or China does it. This is not a hard equation to solve. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, and I make that pun intentionally, to make that call. I'm making that call. This is what I think will happen, and it's certainly what should happen. If it doesn't happen right away within the first you know, six months or whatever of the of the new administration, do you think we're going to have to wait another four years for this, or it just all depends on what happens probably, right? Well, ultimately, yeah, we'll wait until the U.S. government relents. But again, it may not end up being their decision. The again, most of the first world nations, elements within those nations, are aware of the ET presence. And I'm and I'm talking Australia and Canada and England and Germany and France and Italy, right? They all have air forces. Most of them have space programs. They all have telescopes, cameras, chase planes. Uh, they've been following this issue. They've been taking in sightings reports, just as we have. They know there's an ET presence. That doesn't mean everybody in the government knows, but there are elements that do. Any one of those nations could bring forth sufficient evidence to con convince any gaggle of reporters that there's an ET presence. And, of course, if the head of the government of that country confirms it, it's going to be kind of hard to blow that off. Yeah. So the fact is it could happen in any moment. I, I think uh, our government knows this. <laughs> and there will be a price to be paid if the U.S. ends up uh, standing there off to the side going, well, you know, we meant to say something, but we just never got around to it. It it, it, it risks making the U.S. look irrelevant. Yeah. Right? The most important event in human history happens, and we're we're sitting there going, uh, uh, uh. Well, I would prefer that we lead on this. And one of the reasons I, I think it's necessary that we lead on this, so ultimately I don't care. I mean, the, end, the embargo's going to end, and I, and I don't care who ends it, but ultimately. But I, I think that the U.S. Ha it needs to be the leader. And the reason is we have really shattered the trust that our allies and, and all countries in general uh, have for us, have with us. Uh, and this is a bad thing. It's an unfortunate thing. 
and we need to try to rectify that. Well, the only way you can really get people's trust is to tell them the truth. There is no other shortcut to that. You can't buy it. You can't send them more aid and say, will you trust us now? Uh, you can't lie to them better, meaning, look, we're sorry you don't believe us. We'll try to lie better to you in the future. You have to tell them the truth. Well, this is the biggest truth in the world right now. And if, we're, if, we, if we lead there and we announce this reality and truth to the, to the world's people, that's a long, big step back towards maybe having normalized relations and a proper um, certain respect for us. So let us hope that we do take the first step. But if we don't, France will or China will. Like an announcement like that is going to take a lot of pre-planning, I presume. So do you get the impression that there is uh, sort of that stuff in the works, if you will, you know, behind the scenes to get that ready? I mean, they can't just be like, you know, UFOs are real and ET presence is real, you know, and then not really have any follow-up or any sort of plan of action. Do you know of any anything like that that I'm sure it's being worked out in dark corners if it is, but I don't know, maybe you've heard something. Well, look, the event itself would be no more complex, in my opinion, than a, a really expensive wedding. Um, <laughs> uh, you get you know, you're going to get high-level people together from a variety of fields, including some civilian leaders, and you put them into a nice venue with a good moderator, and you make an announcement and take questions, and you're done. Uh, the president would probably announce at least the he announced there was going to be a major announcement uh, from the Oval Office, and then flip it over. That's not a big deal, put together overnight. Uh, they've had 60 years to sort of decide how to deal with a post-disclosure follow-up, uh, so I don't, I don't think there's a lot required there. Uh, I suppose the anal retentive control freaks in government would love to do a lot of things, but fortunately they, they don't call the day. I think the fundamental decision, the fundamental issue is having agreement on the top end in the, in, in the executive branch. Congress is almost irrelevant in this issue. It shouldn't be, but it's made itself irrelevant, which is really an unfortunate thing, and I hope someday Congress figures that out. And then the, the, the management groups that are that are control the issue within government, and, and, and they're deeper down. Uh, in some cases, I think literally deeper down. And it's it's generally, I believe, that we can't prove it, cross agency committees. These are these are these are unacknowledged cross agency committees where you have a group of key agencies have a designated representative that goes and meets with other designated representatives uh, privately. Very little or no records are kept, and they make decisions and discuss the status of things. And there may be more than one of these. And and this is where the issue is managed. Um, so that there is some sort of coherence within government. Though, again, most people within the government would not even know these agencies or these groups are, are, uh, are coming together. Yeah. Uh, but there has to be sort of an agreement down there that, okay, let's go. They would then connect by any number of means with the White House or the executive to say, fine, we'll go, there, and, and then bingo. Then, then they would have to move very quickly because they don't want it to leak. They would probably have to get it out, done, ready to go within 10 days, two weeks because you just can't be out planning something like that. It'll be all over the Internet, uh, and that would be messy. So once a decision is made, they move very fast. A couple of weeks, bing, there it's done. And then once it's out, once the cat's out of the bag, then they can take their time and, and they can plan a lot of stuff. Uh, they can orchestrate it any way they want to, and we will deal with that and address that, and hopefully the, the, the process will, will be as truthful and as and – as, uh, and as honest as possible, but that will be up to the American people. American people uh, will ultimately decide how much they learn in the aftermath of disclosure and how 
accurate that information is. Uh, if we don't try or make an effort, then maybe we'll, we'll get inaccurate information. But we have a responsibility here. We simply cannot let government do anything it wants and expect to, to, to have it serve your best interest. At some point, you've got to exert some influence on it. Uh, and uh, that's a lesson the American people need to relearn, and, and, and very soon. Yeah. we got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Now, I know this isn't your story, but it's been kind of making the rounds lately. What do you make of the alleged uh, U.N. meeting about disclosure that, uh, that's kind of been talked about lately in the last few weeks or so? It's, 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 it's an interesting uh, story. Uh, there have been many such stories that have been popping out. I view what's going on right now as kind of a bubbling cauldron mm -hmm. where suddenly a bubble will emerge and pop and another one over here will emerge and pop. Uh, it, it's happening so fast, it's really difficult to, to vet all this stuff. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter. However, uh, it, 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 it need, we need to know about these things, and, and I'm looking into it, and I hope to know more soon. If there's something there, and I can work with it, I will. Uh, but we, we have to pay attention to all this stuff, but we, we don't want to jump too quickly because there's still, a, there's still the potential for disinformation. Mm -hmm. uh, it, some of it has its own momentum. Uh, the government might still throw a little out there to leaven the process. You have pranksters and others who like to play with this game. Uh, they, they, the embargo, the truth embargo has kind of become a field to play in. So we have to be careful, but we shouldn't dismiss anything outright, and we should be prepared for things to turn up at any time. So I am going to look further into that. Uh, if there was a UN in meeting, I'd like to know about it. I certainly, it's certainly important that we get the UN involved. I think it's, it's illogical. All right. The UN is, is having a bad time. It's, it's viewed increasingly as being irrelevant. Uh, it's had scandals. I think if the UN were to embrace this issue and exert its appropriate hegemony, uh, I think that would be, a, go a long way towards restoring UN credibility. But that's the UN's decision, and I haven't had the time to really engage the UN, though that is on the list of things to do. Yeah. And now you've talked about sort of the change here in the attitude of the mainstream media. And I know you've done a lot of mainstream media appearances for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. Have you sensed a difference, I guess you could say, in the attitude of the people who bring you on TV to talk about this issue? Yeah, it's, 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 it's better. I, it's always been, for me, relatively good. But I don't, I don't really put up with any nonsense. I, I think you, if, you, you don't, if you don't act like you look put up with any nonsense, people tend not to give you any. But uh, overall... It's getting better. Um, my parents have been fine. Larry King, in particular, who's always been, I think, on our side and has tried to do his part, is is, is suddenly really uh, getting active. He's done four shows in the last eight months. That's quite unusual, and I think I expect him to do more. So, uh, you know, thanks to Larry. Wonderful. I hope uh, you know. I'd love to do a show someday. Um, and uh, I'm getting on CNN and Fox. Nightline did a significant show uh, connected to Out of the Blue. The documentary by James Fox and Tim Coleman and others. Uh, so the you know, as I point, not only the media coverage is increasing in print, but it's also we're getting more and more segments on talk shows, uh, news news shows, and and of course you know, there's a lot of shows and they need content. And gee, this is only the most interesting story in the world, so it's hardly surprising. But in fact, we should be on a hundred times more than we are. Yeah. This is a massive story, and there's a whole list of people that should be on and aren't. They haven't gotten around to them yet, but. The, the the cracks are, are forming all along the front of the dam, and uh, um, 
the media is 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 the water that flows through those tracks, and it's getting better. And people should anticipate to see more documentaries, more news segments, more front page articles, unless the government were to somehow intervene and try to really repress this. But I don't recommend the government do that because given the power of the Internet, if it does, we'll know within 24 hours and we'll be all over them. So I don't expect the government to do that. So I think we're going to see expanded media presence and more TV time for this issue, less debunkers, right, less stand in debunkers saying silly things. Yeah. And that will, once the media has signaled to the political uh, class that it's no longer in the tank on this issue, then they will realize they've got to come forward, and they, they will feel safer about it, too. And once the politicians start coming forward, uh, in other words, more more Dennis Kucinich's, more, oh, yeah, I had a sighting, oh, and before you know it, you're going to have some congressmen coming out, well, you know, I've been an abductee since I was six. When you go there, clearly the embargo is probably in its last few minutes, wouldn't we agree? Yeah, definitely. It's always sort of been the idea of people who study the UFO phenomenon that whoever's running the truth embargo, as you like to call it, uh, has their thumb down on the media. Now, would you say that, that the resurgence in media interest, do you think that's a result of uh, more of an independent media or just that whoever's got the grip on the secrets sort of loosening up and being like, all right, it's okay to talk about it more? Extremely complex subject. Let, let, let's, let's, there's two dynamics going on here. One, look, at the same time that media has become bigger than ever, multi-layered, multi-tiered, multi-faceted, which is good. And partially because of that, because we're talking about enormous amounts of investments and money and everything else, the media is also becoming more tightly controlled by lesser entities. So we got more controlled by less, less groups. And that's a problem. And I think it needs to be balanced out. We need to pass certain laws. We need the uh, uh, appropriate agencies to exert a little more influence here and, and mitigate this concentration of power. It's definitely risky. And I think the concentration of media ownership has is, is cost America. It's hurt it in a number of ways. So that's one thing, and it needs to be watched, and it needs to be carefully monitored. On the other thing, the other area is, regardless of who owns the media, what is their, how, how they interacted with the ET UFO phenomenon issue uh, going back 60 years. And uh, that is a very complex issue as well. In fact, that will be covered in the upcoming X conference, which is the fourth one. That's going to be April 18, 19, 20, Gaithersburg, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, all the registration, all that kind of stuff is at x-conference.com, x-conference.com. We have an extraordinary event. But we're going to be getting into that media issue again. Uh, Terry Hansen will be there. Rob Simone, I'll be talking about it. The media, not surprisingly, elected to go along with the truth embargo as it was developed in the 1950s. Uh, it wasn't a hard call. Uh, they were told in various ways. It was sort of just let known that this issue is off limits. Don't go there. It's, it's a problem. Don't deal with it in any serious way or at least exercise some constraint because we've got a cold war underway here. We're going to face it off with the Soviet Union. There's enough nukes to blow everybody to kingdom come. And so the media went along with that. National security reasons. And it, just, and it went along with it for many, many years until it became pretty much standard operating procedure. Yeah. Uh, now, everyone, you know, so it wasn't necessary to put the thumb on them, but I think probably every once in a while a phone call was made or two, maybe a publisher network saying, you know, we're getting a little bit close to home here. So I don't, it's not, I don't, they didn't have to do a lot. The media was pretty much in the tank going back to the 50s, and I'm not going to argue that. 
but of course, when the embargo started to become less appropriate, and and we moved away from the Cold War and everything, the media did was slow to 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 adjust. It sort of went along with the status quo, and in fact, it had developed bad habits, which turned up in other ways, covering other issues. Yeah. In other words, its fundamental adversarial role had degraded, complicated also by the corporate ownership uh, and the concentration of power. So we had an imbalanced situation that was dysfunctional. And, and, and there's plenty being written about that, and I assume corrective measures are underway. So it, just because we still have high concentration of corporate ownership doesn't mean that the media couldn't take on this issue big time, because it is. It is the biggest news story of all time, after all, and the embargo is breaking down, and other nations are getting involved. And so, frankly, if, if I'm a, a major player, a major owner in media today, and the government kind of comes to me and says, you know, kind of wish you kind of stay off that UFO issue, I'd say, you know, guy, that ship sailed a long time ago. So overall, barring again something draconian happening, uh, I think the media is ready to finally go for it. And once they go for it, anybody who has seen a media frenzy knows that uh, there's nothing stopping it. It's like a plague of locusts. It's over, right? Just give in. Tell them what they got. Give them the photograph, and hope you can make it home uh, to you know safely. <laughs> One of the big stories, I guess, from last year that I did want to ask you about was the, the Symington, the Governor Symington Phoenix Light story that came out and was big news, and uh, mm-hmm. he's kind of become a fixture on the circuit now. What was your take on the Symington thing, and, and, and how does it relate to the whole exopolitical political scene? Perfectly emblematic of what's going on, and very important, right? It's like a microcosm of what's happening. In 1997, you have a man who is well-respected uh, politician from a political family, known political family in America. He's governor of an important state, Arizona. And he's starting to have some problems, right? Not uns- not dissimilar to what many other problem- politicians have had. Some business dealings were a little off, and and his his opponents are coming after him, and he's under he's under pressure. The Phoenix Lights events occurs, and he makes fun of it. Um, makes a decision, makes fun of the thing, causes a bit of a ruckus, and sort of looks bad, and and uh, and uh, does not act constructively. As it happens. Uh, his problems got worse, and he was eventually uh, indicted, forced to leave office. And he was convicted of some real estate stuff. But he was pardoned by, by Bill Clinton, and he went on to, to lead a pretty exemplary life. You know, wonderful wife, family, kids, started up a new in, a business, became an important fixture in Santa Barbara. So I mean, he's not a bad guy and a sharp guy. So he intersected the issue in 1997, and he went on to lead a life and put it all behind him. And then, lo and behold, 10 years later, when James Fox turns up to interview him about the Phoenix Lights event as part of trying to upgrade or put out a new edition of his extremely important and, and powerful documentary out of the blue, it's still, in my opinion, the best documentary ever made about the UFOET issue with a lot of exopolitical content. Five Simonton made the decision to go public with the rest of the story, right? And the rest of the story was is that he actually saw the initial craft, the big one, that flew over. This is the earlier in that evening. And it was startling and profound to him. And uh, he just, what can he say? I mean, he, he, what, what is he going to do? He was stunned, moved, but he was the governor, and there was uh, a foo-fog going on, and he made the decision to hold a press conference and bring out an alien guy, a guy in an alien suit, whatever. But 
that was a political decision and a and a, uh, and, a, and a and a mistake. He sat on that information about what he actually saw that night, but he gave it to James Fox. Why? Ten years later, this is a man who had been disgraced, forced to you know resign as governor, who was convicted, but thanks to a pardon, was able to return to his life, lead a pretty good life. And yet, ten years later, he is willing to come forward with that truth about what he saw that night, even though it potentially posed a considerable amount of risk to him and wasn't going to help him in, how would you say, uh, reconnecting with the public. Or it certainly was risky in, in doing that. Why? Because Mr. Symington is, is not a stupid man. He is still a well-connected man. And I have a pretty good idea that he knew that, this, this there had been, that things were changing. And this issue was moving quickly, possibly toward resolution. And he felt confident enough of that that he was able to re-enter the issue. And in fact, he's been involved in several things. And he's been on Larry King. He was the moderator of the CFI James Fox press conference on November the 12th. And so he's emerging as kind of a spokesperson uh, and a political figure engaging the issue, like Paul Hellyer, for instance, and others that are that are getting involved. So this, this shows you this is that things are different now. This is not 1967. This isn't 77, and this isn't 97. This is 2008, and this issue is about to pop. So it's very important what he did. I am very proud that he did that. I hope to meet him someday. Love to have him come to an next conference someday. Uh, and I have great respect for him. It's easy, right? It's easy to just go away and and not have to address issues. It's very hard to say I was wrong. It's even harder to come out and say, look, there's something I didn't tell you, even though it might be a little risky. And you know, this is a sign of courage and wisdom, and he certainly demonstrated that. You're uh, obviously a major player here in the exopolitics field, and I'm sure it's water off a duck's back to you. But But what's your response, I guess you could say, to the haters? The people who, who sort of are antagonistic to the whole thing, and, and they're not just in ufology, but, you know, they're throughout the gamut of esoterica, you know, they seem a little jaded. Um, you know, I could run down a number of their critiques and everything. You're only as good as your weakest link, and, you know, they pick apart certain people in the exopolitical movement, say, well, if you're going to have these guys in there, then you're hurting the whole thing, and it's a joke and all that stuff. What's your, what's your response, I guess you could say, to the haters out there? Well, first of all, I think hate's too strong. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an expression. It is too strong. We all know what you mean by hate. Um, there, there is plenty of dissatisfaction among some people with the exopolitical developments and the, the, what I would call this exopolitical movement. And my response is, it's, it's exactly what's happened a thousand times before. Uh, whenever there's been a, a an activist movement involving a very significant political issue, there's plenty of dissension. There's plenty of disagreement. And it's often along certain lines, particularly the old versus the new. Uh, in this case, it's pretty well defined. You've got the uh, – remember the era of ufology we talked about and all the people that were involved in that and still are, uh, pursuing the citizen science. And they, 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 they sort of became used to a certain approach to this and uh, develop and continue to work on acquiring more knowledge and try to be, even without the money and without the uh, support of colleges and universities and government grants and foundations and everything, but try to do the best science you can and if you succeed, you'll prove the case and we'll acknowledge and, and we'll go forward. That was, been, that was the, um, the modus operandi. Now we have a new, new approach, a new era, the era of exopolitics with new people fresh, coming out of nowhere in some respects, and and they're trying to carry the ball over the goal line. 
Now, that doesn't mean we're going to complete the science. Of course not. The science will be completed by, you know, the mainstream scientists and universities and colleges and in government laboratories. Of course, there's already a lot of science that's been done in secret. Hopefully we'll know about that. Uh, so the science will continue. Um, but there is a there is a, a tension between the old guard and the the new exopolitical uh, people, and it's hardly surprising. It's it's normal. It's to be expected. Uh, I would prefer there wasn't, but hey, this is a utopia. Uh, I'm sure that better effort could be made on both both from both groups to be more understanding, can communicate better with each other, be less suspicious. Um, but politics is not science, even though they refer to it as political science. It's a much messier um, uh, realm to uh, deal in, and um, um, you're dealing with different issues. Uh, and, and the scientific method is, is frequently not involved in those issues in what you have to do. So these tensions are going to remain, and there's going to be criticisms. Um, I, I consider that part and parcel with the activist movement. I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to minimize it, but there's only so much you can do. And I do listen to the, to the complaints, and I've heard them, and, and I'm not unaware of them. And to the extent I can respond and adjust, I will respond and adjust. Uh, but let's be clear. Most of the people that I work with have nothing but a high regard and respect for the researchers that have developed this field for the last 60 years, living and dead. And there would be no exopolitical movement without them. Um, and as we go forward, there's going to be no efforts really on my part to diminish their contribution or to undermine them. Um, but we still have to, we have a goal. We have to get this embargo ended. We need it. We need a disclosure event. And so I'm going to pursue that goal. Uh, and that will take first priority. And hopefully in time, the old guard, the researchers uh, particularly, will develop a little more of appreciation for what we're trying to do, which is not to say there aren't people making mistakes or even some people maybe in the exopolitical movement saying some things which are pretty far out there. But as we know, if you look at the whole scientific uh, history of ufology, there's plenty of out there things being said from time to time. Sometimes those things actually prove to be real. For instance, in the, in the very early days, you had people starting to talk about abductions, and they were told they were crazy. What are you talking about? It, it, weird enough, we got saucers flying around here. Now you're saying that aliens are taking you up into ships? Give me a break. Well, guess what? Now we know they are doing that. Um, so what can I say? Uh, it's part of the human condition. Uh, no major political movement in history has ever gone smoothly. Pick one. We can, I can tell you about it. Uh, so we're no different. And I would say overall we're doing about as well as the rest of them. So I'm neither angry uh, nor pessimistic about our ability to move forward. And ultimately everybody, I think, hopefully can agree on one thing, and that is, is that if disclosure takes place, and the government finally relents and acknowledges that there is an ET presence. Everybody in this field will benefit. Well, actually, that raises an interesting point because a lot of people, uh, the critics, I guess you could say, and I only use the word, I only use the expression haters because, uh, you know, it's a slang term nowadays. So yeah. I, I didn't mean in the literal sense that they hate anyone. You raise a point here because a lot of people seem to think that if disclosure happened, um, the people in ufology and their accomplishments and their work and everything would be severely diminished, not by the exopolitical people, but just by the mainstream media. Sure. Yeah. The UFO issue be taken out of their hands and put into the mainstream science, and they would kind of be like, okay, you were right, now go away. 
So, I mean, uh, and maybe it's an innate, unspoken fear, if you will, of, of uh, a tarnished legacy or something. I don't know. But everybody's, is, is, yeah, no, it's a legitimate concern. In fact, uh, when I entered the field in 96, uh, I really had that concern and I, I, in the first few years. It was on my mind a great deal. I don't have it as much now, and, and, the, and the reason for that is pretty straightforward. It's the Internet. Uh, the, the, the real rise of the Internet almost marries my my uh, time in this, from 1996-2008. And because of the the web presence that the UFO and exopolitical community is generating, the archiving of videos, lectures, presentations, uh, there is an indelible and unerasable history of interaction of these people with this issue that cannot be erased uh, by the government in a post-disclosure world. This is not 1948 Soviet Union when they were going through all the darn photographs and, and airbrushing out everybody that was out of favor or executed. This, this is a new world. Yeah. And so uh, I think we got a pretty good, I think it's very likely that uh, the Everyone that contributed is, will be acknowledged in one form or another. Nobody ever gets acknowledged as much as they want. I understand that, but they're not going to be left behind. There's really not going to be. There's no way that the exo political guys, as we're sometimes referred to, are somehow going to have, have the ability to to make the ufologists and the scientists and the oligarch go away. Not being acknowledged, it's not going to happen. And we, would, I, I certainly wouldn't do that. And I don't know any of my colleagues that would do that. So. It's not, but there, there is a legitimate concern that the mainstream, particularly those who have been sitting on the sidelines, somebody rushing forward and say, oh, I know all about this, and those guys are idiots, and I'm a professor at Harvard, and I've, I know all about this, so you'd listen to me. Yeah, there'll be some of that. But the Internet record is there, and so they are going to be acknowledged. I think their, their biggest concern should be whether they live long enough, okay? In other words, somebody's told us pretty old, and uh, – so my advice is stay healthy, give up smoking, drink less, eat better food, take your vitamins, and hang in there uh, so that you're going to be here when disclosure takes place. Uh, clearly, if it happens next year, we're in good shape. So, uh, you know, if we all at least keep that goal in mind and act to the extent possible in the interest of moving this disclosure process forward, then disclosure will come sooner than later. And then once it comes... Well, then I guess we'll address the proper acknowledgement of the people that contributed to this this whole process. And I am far more optimistic now than I was in 1997 that there will be a proper acknowledgement, and, and uh, I, I feel that way, and hopefully nothing will change my mind on that. Yeah. Just to get a little on-the-ground perspective, I know you're down there in Laughlin. Uh, what's the mood like out in Laughlin? How's the scene out there? And, and uh, you've been out there before, I presume, so so maybe compare it a little bit to the past years. Is, it, is the mood up? Is the mood down? Uh, you know, optimistic, all that good stuff. Uh, what's it like out there? Uh, it's, it's, um, the conference is going smoothly. Bob and his daughters, Nicole and so forth, have, have, are doing a fine job. Nice turnout. More speakers than before. Uh, you know, it's, they've been doing it for a long, long time. And uh, I think what's probably notable is that it's kind of routine, and it's kind of what you would expect. Uh, most people here, this is this, they're very familiar with this issue, so they're not easily surprised. It's comfortable. There's a lot of collegiality. We come here to meet, talk, engage. Yeah. Uh, this is one of a number of conferences where that happened. So all good. Probably the most important event of this event will be the interview of, of the Rob uh, moderated by Rob Simone on, on Saturday 
of, of Dan Burrish, where he's going to spend a couple of hours asking a lot, answering a lot of questions, and I'm extremely interested in knowing what Mr. Burr, Dr. Burrish has to say. Um, and that's good. Uh, so we're excited about that, and uh, we're all having a good time. Uh, and I, I uh, again, I'm very appreciative of, of the Brown family that they have been keeping this conference going now for all this time. It's been an important part of the citizen science movement. And what about uh, youth turnout? I've been a big pusher here for young people in, in the uh, in the esoteric fields and all that good stuff. And uh, it seems like it may be kind of starting to turn around. More young people, I'm hoping, will start to get into the UFO scene and all the other uh, extemporaneous er areas. Um, How do the young people turn out there, it seems like, this year? Uh, I'll be candid with you. The uh, young people are still not – the Generation Double Xers – particularly, and any generation X are still very slowly getting involved. It's yeah. difficult. And I think I've come to accept the fact that they're not going to get involved until post-disclosure. Uh, it's, it's, it's complex. It's a complex um, uh, discussion. Let me just say that that, that the end of this truth, the, the, the truth embargo was created by the, the last generation. Not the baby boomers, but the one before that. The generation that is now often referred to as the greatest generation because of John, uh, uh, Brokaw's book. Mm -hmm. um, they created it, and they maintained it. The, dis the ending of the truth embargo, I think, falls to the baby boomer generation, my generation. I'm almost, almost all of my colleagues are roughly about my age, uh, born not too long after World War II. And it's our job pretty much to try to bring this under control and the truth embargo and probably to a larger measure reform the national security state or certainly what I call the secret empire. The Generation X and Generation Xers are far more comfortable with the idea of being in space or far more comfortable with the idea of extraterrestrials. It's not that big a deal to them. Uh, and of course they're young and they've got a life to lead and they're involved in that. And, and this is not a life or death kind of thing. It's not an obvious thing. I mean, if you're a black person trying to get civil rights or a woman trying to get to vote or if you're an Indian trying to get the British out, it's pretty clear what the problem is. The ET issue is far more subtle, far more complex. And so they, they, they're just, it's just not something that's going to take millions and millions of young kids and put them in the streets. It's not going to happen. But they're well aware of what's going on. They're paying attention, by and large, and they're, they're cool with the issue. So the, the baby boomer generation, we will end the truth embargo. And once that announcement is made, I am fairly confident that the young people will be on board real fast. Uh, and that will be, I guess, uh, our gift to them. Since we pretty much bankrupted the country, wiped out the ozone, and we're melting the ice caps, I guess the least we can do is give them uh, the truth on the ET presence. <laughs> well, as a part of that generation, I appreciate it. All right, well, let's talk about the X-Conference 2008. It's coming up April 18th to the 20th, Gaithersburg, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, mm -hmm. X-Conference.com, is that the uh, URL? That's right. Uh, it's our fourth one. It, 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 it's uh, called Insiders 2, and it's really strong. We have an extraordinary banquet scheduled for Saturday night in which the uh, lead keynote, main keynote, will be given by astronaut director Edgar Mitchell, founder of IONS, the author of of um, the, the Way of the Explorer, and of course, uh, one of the few men that walked on the moon, Apollo 14. A brilliant man, a great man. He's giving the main keynote to be a short keynote by Paul Hellier, the former Minister of Defense of Canada, and then a short keynote by uh, George Norrie. I think you may be familiar with George. Oh, I know George. Oh, yeah. Last I remember, he was the host of a leading late night talk show in America. 
And then we have uh, Dr. Bruce McAbee and Dr. C.B. Scott Jones will be part of an aviary panel along with Dr. John Alexander. We've got Dr. Tom Ballone talking about alternative to, to energy. We have got, uh, oh, Lord, we've got Dr. Brian O'Leary, another astronaut, coming in to talk. We've got Grant Cameron, who will have a special presentation regarding the uh, developments with uh, the presidents and UFOs, which is extremely timely, new information there. Mike Bird, Victor Vigiani are coming down. Uh, Colin Andrews will be presenting. We're going to uh, premiere the new edition of the Phoenix Lights documentary, along with two documentaries about uh, John Mack, a tribute to John Mack. This is a part of what people can find at x-conference.com. It's an important event, and it's not just an event to hold an event. It's part of the advocacy process. It's in Washington. All the members of Congress are invited. All the presidential candidates are invited. Political press are invited. It's a, it's a showing of the flag. It's a, yeah, get five, 600 people in that hotel and let it be known that we're not going away. We expect to have the truth, and we expect our politicians to get involved. That's why I created it. That's why we hold it. And we hope as many as possible will come join us uh, in the Gatesburg in April. As someone who's been to two of them, I can absolutely say that uh, it's a must-attend. It's the best East Coast conference there is. So if you're in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, all these, you know, that whole corridor, you, there's no excuse not to attend it. It'll be cheaper than having to fly all the way out across the country someplace. And mm -hmm. someone who's on limited budget myself, uh, I was head over heels when I first attended it. And I'm hoping this year that I can make the trip down to Washington. So I'll, I'll keep you abreast of that situation. Cause I and let me mention, Tim, I almost forgot, that George isn't just giving a brief keynote. He's also giving a special two-hour presentation, a rare visit to the East Coast. It's a fundraising event for PRG, and he's going to autograph books. He's going to get Q&A, and he's going to talk about his career. This is a, just a great opportunity for the fans of George on the East Coast. So that's going to be on Saturday as well uh, at the X Conference. Totally. George Norrie rarely makes a trip out to the East Coast, so uh, this is a great chance for all the great Coast to Coast listeners to get a chance to meet him. Um, and like I said, all these major cities here on the corridor, there's no excuse not to miss this conference. It's outstanding. And if you've never been to one, definitely want to check this one out because I had a great time uh, when I attended both years. Like I said, Steve, uh, in a world of talkers, you're a doer, and I appreciate that so much. Um, and I really appreciate you giving us so much time here to take some time out of your trip out there to Laughlin. Um, I really appreciate that. I know how busy it is at these conferences. You know, mm -hmm. like you said, there's a lot of networking involved. This, the presentations are just part of the story out there. It's always, you know, the meeting and the greeting and everything. So to take some time here to talk to us and come back on the show, I really appreciate it. I look forward to future developments. We're going to obviously keep in touch, and um, we're going to keep following this story till the till the embargo breaks down. Yeah, Tim, I appreciate your uh, your uh, your time as well, and uh, glad to have you on board with us. And you're you're making history, my friend. And so let's just keep focused, keep our eye on the prize. Absolutely. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season Three. I can't thank Steve Bassett enough for coming on the show, taking some time out of his trip to Laughlin to actually do the interview. And huge, huge thanks to Steve for that. You can find out more information on Steve Bassett at the websites www.paradigmresearchgroup.org, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M, researchgroup.org. And check out information on the X Conference at www.x-conference.com. Definitely want to make the trip down to the Beltway to attend the X Conference if you have a chance. Moving right along now, let's dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. And here's what we have. I'm going to be a little selfish with this one, folks, but 
selfish to help out some other people. You'll understand after I read the letter. It comes from someone by the name of Lon. No hometown listed, just Lon. And the title is Reciprocal Link. I was wondering if you could consider a reciprocal link to our blog, Phantoms and Monsters. I enjoy your site and placed a link to it a while back. Thanks for the considerations, Lon. There you go, short and sweet and very cool from Lon to send me that email. And of course I'll put up a reciprocal link. And the selfish part is I want to talk about the new section of BOA that we added in January or so. At the bottom of the homepage, scroll down to the black column in the middle of the page. It says, Friends of BOA has a great list of all the great websites that have been helping us out. And of course we included here this new website, Phantoms and Monsters. You can find that at phantomsandmonsters.com. But in the list of friends of BOA, you can find, of course, many of our great friends online, like Anomalous.com, DailyGrail.com, Alien Worlds, Winter Steel, Paranormal.About.com, Remote Central, the list goes on and on. It's quite a list. Go there, you can check that section out at the homepage, and then jump to these sites and check them out and investigate them, and really dig into some of their work. Folks who have been huge supporters of BOA for quite some time, and I want to give them their due and hopefully return the favor and help spread the word about their great sites. Thank you, Lon, for the email. And like I said, I already put your link up there, so you're all hooked up with the link, buddy. Of course, folks, send me your links if you want to do something like that. I'm always down for uh, working together with people throughout the world of Esoterica. We need more cohesion, less competitive craziness, and uh, I think we'll be advancing the agenda further and faster with that mindset. But hey, that's just me. Some folks have different opinions on that sort of thing. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, here's how you do it. There's two ways. Either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com. Click the contact button. You'll find a creepy picture and the contact information to get in touch with me and become a part of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, what else? You know it. It's the thanks portion of the show. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, and Rochelle Hawks the outstanding BOA staff. I couldn't do this show without them. I couldn't run BOA without them. They really carry the load Monday through Friday at Banal of America with enlightening columns that anyone who considers themselves a student of Esoterica should be reading. We've been saying it quite a while here at the end of the program. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not checking out the columns at banalofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story Punch in BOA, check it out seven days a week, something new, something fresh, something maybe a little off-kilter to satisfy your quest for esoteric news and opinion. For me, BOA started as a hobby. It's grown into a massive franchise that at times just, just about frightens me. And, of course, that kind of thing costs me money. It's not cheap to run the Banal of America starship. Uh, the phone calls, the bandwidth, the hosting, that stuff costs money. How do we keep it free for all of our great listeners and readers? We do it with donations from the outstanding supporters of BOA. i got to thank all the great folks who have been donating so far in 2008. There's other folks out there, though, that are on the fence. They've been thinking about donating, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, well, I'll do it later. Now's the time to do it, my friends. Donate to Banal of America if you can and help us keep the website and the audio freely available to all of our great listeners the world over. I don't even need to mention the BOA store. You know about it by now if you visit the website. Let your freak flag fly. Tell them UFOs are real. Get over it. Or that you believe in Bigfoot. Maybe advance the theory that Stonehenge was an inside job. All those great slogans on t-shirts, 
aprons, frisbees, mouse pads, anything you could really want to put that thing on, it's on there. So check out the BOA store at Benall of America. And those purchases there, of course, throw a little money into the till that helps keep BOA on the straight and narrow. Next week on the program, I'm going to give you just a little half tease here, because much like how we have this show here with Steve Bassett, next week's guest is going to be taped this coming week to roll out next weekend. Since it's been scheduled for a while, I might as well reveal the name and the topic we'll be discussing. The guest will be Dr. Bob Curran. We're going to be talking about his book, Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms. Amazing stuff here. I'm about halfway through the book, so I can only really give you half preview And I don't want to do that. I don't want to give you half and half. But it's mysterious places. It's mythical places. From what I've read so far of Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms, it is tremendous. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Bob Kern this coming week for the next episode of BOA Audio. Stop by Benall of America at some point towards the end of the week, and we'll have a little preview up of what exactly we'll be talking about with Dr. Bob Kern as we discuss Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms. And on that note, we're going to wrap it up here for the week. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening, wishing you an excellent week, and signing off.